Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Work Stoppage. Thank you so much for listening. This is the New Year's episode, recording on New Year's Eve, but you won't hear this till tomorrow at the earliest. So, yeah, it is on New Year's, I guess. That's right. Welcome to 2021, everybody. Uh, If you want to spend 2021 receiving twice as many episodes of Work Stoppage, Please subscribe to our Patreon account. It really does go a long way towards keeping the show going. Remember to join the Discord. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a public episode today, but we do have a little surprise for our patrons coming up on the next bonus episode. So if you're not already signed up, uh, get in before next week to find out what that is. Well, and also we've done some really solid episodes on, well, we did the general strike in India, which is a super awesome episode worth checking out. Out. Yep, and then we did a, a little coverage of the pro act. It was funny because I had um, a friend be like, "Oh, it's really interesting that you did that deep breakdown of the pro act, considering they uh, they were part of the AFL CIO or something." And it's like people have been talking about that forever, and I'm just like, "Well, we hadn't talked about it, and it was pretty cool." So yeah, it was really cool to see something like that, even being kind of considered as a possibility in uh, American politics. And it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of possibilities of an American politics come up in the next year. I I think everybody, you know, I I don't think anybody's explicitly saying this, but the impression that I get from a lot of people online is like, goodbye 2020 and goodbye to all the problems. I'm going to wake up January 1st and I'm not going to need a mask and I'm going to have my, all my unemployment that didn't come through is going to finally come through. And it's like, (laughs) no, you're going to go to bed on a Thursday and wake up on a Friday, just like any other week. So buckle up everybody Maybe the only difference is you'll be more hungover yeah you might have a pretty nasty hangover like the guy (laughs) i was working with today he was like i'm taking off a half hour early got to get a head start on my drinking i was like a half hour (laughs) early is 1 30 are you gonna drink for 10 and a half hours (laughs) he seemed confident though so i was just like get out of here bro have a have a happy new year you're good yeah (laughs) well um we've got a couple different things i think we uh don't quite have a follow-up necessarily this week but we are going to hit a couple different things throughout this that are going to be a bit of a um, staple for our podcast um amazon and and things like that but we're going to start in new jersey at a uh, concentration camp where prisoners have supposedly gone on hunger strike um on monday there's the uh abolish ice of new jersey new york Mm -hmm. that uh had said that there was 25 to 28 um, of the political prisoners there that are actually on hunger strike to try to get released because of COVID. And I mean, they're literally in a concentration camp. The ICE office that was actually like managing that said that there are no hunger strikes going on, which is interesting. Of course. Um, Though somehow we've managed to get this entire article with a bunch of information in it. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, ICE isn't going to recognize anything that's happening in their facility. They're like, oh, we slid, you know, a piece of bread under the door. Whether they eat it or not, that means they're not on hunger strike. Yeah. But I guess this hunger strike is, is specifically in response to increasing COVID cases in the... They call it an ICE facility in here, and they keep referring to these people as ICE detainees. But it's like you mentioned to me right before we were on Mike Lena uh, that this is a concentration camp, and these are victims of concentration camps. That that's what's happening. Like it says, there are no infections at this uh, at this ICE facility. Though I really want to know, like, are they testing them? Like, because that's the thing I was I was really interested in. Is so you're saying there's no one who is sick. In this mm-hmm. concentration camp. 
like like I'm even if it's not COVID, like are you testing people? There's no actual right. information on whether or not they're testing anyone or they're just saying no one has COVID, which I'm guessing just means that we've not tested anyone and therefore no one officially has COVID. Right. Yeah. It sounds to me like it's the same deal as like not acknowledging the hunger strike. Like <laughs> they can just tell you there's no hunger strike and no COVID cases and you have to believe them because they run the facility. I mean, you don't actually have to believe them, but most people will, most media outlets and stuff will, but like, you know, you wouldn't believe the Gestapo or, you know, the, the people, the Nazi guards running the concentration camps, if they told you, oh, no, everything is fine in there. So I don't think <laughs> we should, you know, pay any fucking credence to what these no, goblins No, I mean, like, they've say. got beds that are a foot and a half wide. Yeah. <laughs> or one of the reasons why this is coming is because the um, entire area, the Hudson County area of New Jersey, uh, has been kind of under fire since the, what is it, the, the county board of chosen Freeholders. I was gonna say freeloaders. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, <laughs> little little Freudian slip there. The <laughs> unconscious never misses these these freeloaders. Um, I, I was shocked at this at this name for a administrative board like this, and I had to look it up. But apparently, uh, in New Jersey, they call their legislative bodies boards of chosen freeholders, and they're the only state that does this. But apparently, in in January. Uh, tomorrow. In fact, starting tomorrow, starting the day this. that this is released, yeah, <laughs> uh, they're going to be changing it from Board of Chosen Freeholders to Board of County Commissioners, which I guess has less of a negative connotation. But like freeholders was originally that meant people who owned land, right? Like you own land, you can be in charge of other stuff. And so this is a direct through line from that. And they're basically just changing the name to be like, Oh, definitely don't look at the through line between who was allowed to own (laughs) property and who's in power now. Right. Uh, But they had voted, uh, six to three to renew the ice facility contract. Um, mostly because of the money. I mean, they get $120 per day per, uh, prisoner, from ICE. ICE pays uh, Hudson County. They literally are are getting some of their funding from increasing the number of people in this concentration camp. Um, Wait so, a minute. Why are we spending $120 a day on prisoners in a concentration camp when we could just give people who came to this country for an opportunity $120, $120 a, a day? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, that, I think that that would be a much better use of of money in general. Um, but because of this, there's been a bunch of pushback. There was apparently 10 hours of public comment in opposition of this particular, um, renewal of contract. Damn. And there was activists protesting outside of, uh, County executive Tom DeGuise's home. And he, he responded by giving, by putting out a restraining order and, penning an op-ed calling them all left-wing extremists these (laughs) left-wing extremists don't want like political prisoners in concentration camps honestly that is the smallest energy move you could have possibly done in the face of these protesters like getting a restraining order (laughs) like oh my i can't stop thinking about this just in parallel with like nazi germany like some fucking ss officer is like i need a restraining order against the communist militants protesting in the street <laughs> it's like it's so fucking ridiculous but this is par for the course in this country yeah, yeah. I, I i don't know like don't let people 
<laughs> who are supposed to be administrating things write op-eds? Like, don't they have a job to do? Well, I'm glad he's not doing it. There's right. The layers to how fuck this, fucked up this is are, like, well, sending me spinning exactly right now. This is exactly like what we see with labor strikes. Uh, this, I mean, this being another type of strike, is that right. power will literally just do legal injunctions against them. Like yes. they're they're like, know what? Um, you really want to be respected? How about you go fuck yourself? That is their only response. It is always their only response. The only time that there there is any sorts of like, I guess they said in uh, Berg, Bergen County, uh, the the county jail there, there was a hunger strike recently that got two detainees, I I almost used their language, two prisoners (laughs) released, and there was some other people that were transferred to other facilities, one as far as Miami, which means that they're basically just breaking up the unions in the prison. And shuffling around, you know, resistance to unlawful detainment or inhumane detainment, right? It's like, oh, you know, there's a there's a COVID problem at one of these facilities. We'll let these two people go and then we'll transfer this other like dozen or whatever to just different ICE facilities across the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it makes me think like I, I, I love that people are in support of these of these inmates, but like we need something that doesn't just like stay limited to this one resource. We need to say like, hey, <laughs> These aren't these aren't people who have really done anything wrong, and you need to let them all go, COVID or not. COVID has just made us, you know, yeah, pick, choose well, this time to bring it up. Yeah, I think that um, COVID is a convenient thing that hits a lot of like liberals. They're like, oh wait, mm-hmm. these are these people are in confined quarters. They are not able to social distance. They are basically being forced to cohabitate with people that are possibly carrying the virus. I mean, a lot of the um, ice uh douchebags are basically like cops and they ca- they are the covid vectors of the community right. um so i mean that's a that's a way to kind of talk to people who are maybe not uh ready to get uh restraining orders and and called left-wing extremists but right. still uh i think that in in the long run, we're going to need to expand this to not just COVID, but but literally just the fact that these people are political prisoners in a concentration yep. camp. Absolutely. Yeah, nothing but solidarity to the people going on these hunger strikes and, and all of the people supporting them, both in ins- inside and outside of these concentration camps. Uh, I know it can be really, really tough. It says here that uh, some of the people who were hunger striking in Bergen County were at times denied water, medical care, heat, window access, uh, and and things like that. So, you know, the, the, the punitive backlash for this kind of shit is immense. And it, it's really worth noting just the kind of, you know, drive and, and commitment to looking out for yourself and others that, uh, that, that gets people through when they're, when they're, you know, engaging in activities like these hunger strikes. So yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing but support to these folks. Absolutely. So as we started really dark on, on this episode, uh, let's, <laughs> we're going to, it yeah, doesn't, we, it doesn't get better, but I guess it's not quite as dark. Um, yeah. It's like, um, this is one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, everything's turning around. And then you realize it's like, well, this doesn't really put that big of a dent in anything, but it, it's yeah. nice, I guess. Yeah. We're coming up on our international section and we're going to go to Australia this time mm-hmm. for a follow up on the prop 22 fiasco that went down in California. In fact, this article from the age explicitly draws parallels between them, but apparently 
Uber recently settled out of court in Australia shortly after an apparent hearing where three federal court judges, quote unquote, savaged the company's arguments at trial. I love that terminology, savaged them. Savaged. That's fantastic, isn't it? So in settling out of court, uh, Uber is potentially avoiding the costs of a requirement to pay its workers a minimum wage, uh, complying with unfair dismissal rules, and all the other things that would come with acknowledging that their drivers are employees of the company. So the judges who were handling the trial said that the trial was not a debating club and that Uber should stay in the real world and quote-unquote Everybody knows what function Uber plays, which is badass. I don't usually go to bat for judges, but they're right this time. So Uber, this whole case was brought against Uber by Amita Gupta, who was an Uber Eats worker backed by the Transport Workers Union in Australia, who claimed that she had been unfairly dismissed when her Uber Eats access was cut off because of late deliveries. So she appealed all the way up to the federal court. And during this system of appeals, Uber continued to stay in court and litigate this battle, you know, with the option to settle out of court at any time, really driving home the point that they know that, like, if they let this, you know, if they let Amita Gupta win her case, then it's going to set a precedent. But then they also realized once they got all the way up to the federal court that these judges were very not sympathetic to their side and that if they let an official federal ruling come down, that would set a precedent like, you know, a much stronger precedent than just settling with Miss Gupta out of court. And so they ended up doing just that. Um, But, uh, you know, Australian news media is buzzing about this. It's really raising the question about whether or not it's acceptable for Uber to classify their drivers as independent contractors. You know, obviously it's not. And I think after what happened in California, everybody's eye is really on the ball about this because we're seeing it play out in real time. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, about the the way that this argument is presented because the Transport Workers Union uh, National Secretary Michael Kane praised Ms. Gupta and her husband, uh, Santosh, who uh, okay. declined to comment. I think that one of the important things is actually just the, like, the argument here is that um, she was sacked for being like 10 minutes late, even though these workers are required to basically be on call for hours and hours and hours entirely mm-hmm. without pay, which I mean, is a, I mean, that's a vigilance order, which is part of a job. Right. Um, and so if they're not employees and they are independent contractors, why is it that they are like their contracts say the moment we you get a notification, you need to be in your car moving? Right. Like, how is that even possible if they're actually meant to just, like, stand vigilant for a long time? I mean, you're just supposed to sit there and do nothing and not get paid? I mean, that that, that kind of insinuates that you are a worker. Like, you are yeah. actually an employee. The, the whole Uber Eats model, to me, stinks of something that you would think up and would sound like a really good idea if it were done with robots. You're like, what if there was an app where you just, you looked at the restaurants in town and you selected what you want and showed up at your house later? And it's like, yeah, it's a great idea. Very Everybody cool. would love that. How do we make it happen? Uh <laughs> You have to pay turn, people to do that. Turn people into robots is what they right. want well, to do. And and it's the whole thing like, um, you know, I think that you we can even use this issue to win over some people we might not consider ourselves politically aligned with a lot of the time. Because even within the internal logic of capitalism, you're supposed to set up a service that fills a need and is cost effective, right? Like you're, you're supposed to be able to make money filling a need. And instead, the whole finance capital, venture capital 
MO of Uber Eats is like, we will just run in the red until we've had this service established for so long that everybody just thinks they need it because they've had it for 15 years or whatever. And in the process, you know, to, to make all of that uh, running in, in debt for over a decade even feasible, they have to crush workers and they have to treat them like dog shit and force them to, you know, like you said, basically be vigilant and, and operating under a vigilance order without getting paid. They get paid per delivery, which is just like fucking outrageous. Yeah. And then on top of all that, for Uber to be like, oh, these are independent contractors, you know, to, to quote these Australian judges, they said, everyone knows what function Uber plays. The restaurant's function is to prepare the food. Uber's function is to deliver the food. Isn't that right? And then Justice Richard White expressed similar sentiments when he tried to pin down whether Uber saw its riders as independent contractors. And uh, Justice White said, well, we actually operate in the real world here. Judgments are practical things, especially in this context. This is not a debating club, which is the other thing is that Uber has really stretched out this whole academic question of are these workers are these employees? It's a you know? philosophical question. Socrates could yeah. have never figured it out. <laughs> Nobody can really say, yeah, you know, this is why Diogenes wandered around Athens with a lamp in the daytime saying he was looking for an honest man. Uh, but it's like, <laughs> you know, it, it's just so fucking obviously transparent and it's it's all time buying. It's all trying to stretch out their investment capital and trying to maintain their market share. And, and it's just really fucking reprehensible. And, you know, nothing but respect to Amita Gupta and, and her family and everybody who supported her in this case. But I almost wish that Uber had just gone for it and been yeah. that much stupider and more brassy because then they would have had, you know, something legal. I don't know how the Australian legal system works, but I think in that case they would have had some like a you know, precedent. legal precedent to, to yeah. lean on in, in future cases going forward. Yeah, and they definitely don't want something like that. I mean, that would have to be like a, I mean, a lot of uh, judicial systems are precedent based, I think, but I'm not, I don't, you're right. I don't know about the Australian one. It's surprising to me too, that this happens in Australia. I don't know that much about what the labor organizing workers rights scene in Australia is broadly, but I do know that in general, Australia is one of the only countries that can be considered as conservative as the United States or in a similar ballpark to being as right-wing as the United States. And maybe it's just that here, these Silicon Valley bros have a lot more direct access to lawmakers and a lot more direct influence in Washington. And maybe because the tech sector doesn't control as much of the economy in Australia, Uber isn't quite as powerful there, you know, inside the halls of power. I'm not sure. But I, I thought it was interesting that it happened in Australia and not even like a, a, a mildly more progressive imperial core country like france for instance yeah I, i'm just so tired of of these these people these especially uber i mean like they're literally all over the world these these international companies are are just exploiting workers on a on a scale that we truly can't understand like if you even if you think that people are struggling in certain ways just like here you, you know someone who's having a tough time i mean just imagine that's literally everywhere in every country even countries Mm -hmm. in europe where they have certain restrictions against this sort of things even places where like burger kings are unionized there are still these problems absolutely yeah there's no there's no magic 
you know, Nordic model socialism that's going to fix all this. And I don't even have that much, you know, I don't have that much faith in the fucking Australian judicial system either, I suppose. But uh, it is, it is workers like Amita Gupta and like any, you know, the organizing gig workers in, in Canada and in the United States right now. And, and in several other places, I think also I saw they were organizing in France and the UK and Germany. So that's really cool and important. And those are the people who, who really drive these movements, not these snotty ass judges, even though I might happen to agree with them in this one particular yeah. context. So, um, I guess in the same kind of, no, I mean, I mentioned we were going to be hitting a lot of similar things that we've hit before, whether it be Uber or Amazon, I think we're going to get right back, uh, to Amazon, the, the true enemy of the people. Yeah. And we're going to actually be doing a little bit. I, I love these like kind of semi deep dives that we've been doing to kind of, kind of explain certain things that might be a little bit obfuscated by just like media in general, but uh, we're going to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the shipping practices of Amazon. So yep. Amazon has been basically cornering the e-commerce market has become 40% of online sales and under the pandemic has amassed immense profits for Jeff Bezos. His net worth has jumped up over $70 billion just since March. Yep. So that's up to $186 billion, which I don't, it's actually a number that I know that my brain doesn't fathom, but I, I'm going to kind <laughs> of, I'm going to assume that a lot of other people's can either. The whole thing about Amazon is that all of the numbers are just unfathomable, right? Like to control 40% of online sales is already like, I I don't know if that's worldwide or in the country, but either way, that's insane. And then on top of that, the fact that like their sales business is only about 20% of their revenue, they actually subsidize their sales business with Amazon web services, which accounts for like 80% of their income almost. So they, they can just keep gobbling up bigger and bigger market shares because they'll just make your product cheaper and sell it proprietary through their own website. Yeah. I think that, uh, do we actually get to the example of, uh, I think that there, maybe, maybe we don't have it here, but there was an example of like a, like a, camera tripod company that Mm -hmm. did this that was really popular had this good innovation and amazon basically just produced the exact same thing to a t and then banned them from selling on amazon yep so amazon is trying to get their grubby little paws into every little corner of industry that's tangential enough to them that they actually have some reach into it And the main thing that they've been focusing on recently is something called the last mile. And in logistics and delivery, the last mile, actually getting the product onto the customer's doorstep is often the most expensive part of the whole thing and can account for up to 30% of the, the logistics costs of shipping the item. So they've, they've been hiring these people for a long time, uh, you know, they contract out through UPS, FedEx, DHL, and the Postal Service, but they're also building out their own delivery network. So they're they're establishing themselves as the one of the biggest customers, like probably the biggest customer of all of these parcel delivery programs, and forcing them to rely on Amazon in a way. And then Amazon's coming along and saying, well, we're just going to cut you out. I'm sorry, we turned you into a middleman and now you're gone. So they used to make their employees like use their own cars, but now they're letting them rent Amazon branded blue trucks to deliver their packages around it. When I was working outside of a hotel recently, I saw these Amazon workers all the time because so yeah. much stuff showed up at the well, hotel. And that's the funny thing is that you do think that they're Amazon workers, but 
turns out that they might not be. They actually are just subcontracted. Yeah, most of the time they are subcontracted out. I think there are some places where for certain legal or logistics reasons, Amazon does hire their does actually hire employees to do this, but the vast majority uh, are not. So Amazon, by 2019, around half of Amazon Prime packages in the U.S. were delivered by subcontractors or contingent workers. So not full-time UPS employees, not people working for the USPS who have benefits and stuff. Gig economy workers, no, basically. People who are working overtime for w- without overtime pay and without benefits. Right. And these people, just like we were talking about with the Uber Eats drivers earlier, these people are paid by... Per completion of delivery route. They don't make an hourly wage. They love to dress that up as a meritocracy, but really it's like, hey, we've designed a complex system to like slowly give you less and less money uh, for the amount of labor that you put in. So Amazon, uh, Amazon Flex, which is what they call their, their, program because of course it's about having flexible hours it's not about having you know a, a flexible, flexible workforce that actually doesn't uh have any real benefits you know there's right. flexible for the company not flexible for the workers right so these these flex drivers they have to provide their own vehicle or rent a delivery van and in 2019 a group of amazon flex drivers in california sued amazon claiming that the company had intentionally misclassified flex drivers as independent contractors to avoid paying overtime and benefits in addition to flex the company is increasingly relying on its delivery service partners program rolled out in 2018 DSPs are small subcontracted parcel delivery firms with 20 to 40 delivery vans apiece. So these are small companies where Amazon is saying, hey, do you want to suckle on the teat of Amazon? Form a little LLC or whatever and be a delivery service partner for Amazon. Just don't employ more than 40 delivery vans because otherwise it'll be really easy for your workers to organize and they, they might actually you know, be able to get together. And, and also because having a bunch of small decentralized units is a more effective means for Amazon to keep overhead low while they continue to ship more and more shit constantly every year. Right. And so they were mentioning that this was actually kind of a union busting technique. And mm-hmm. I was a little um, interested in that. Is it because it's got the kind of like small business factor and that like you don't want to be, you know, interfering with your boss who you know personally, but right. really your boss is Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I think it's a personalization thing. I think they're basically saying like, look, if we only have 40 drivers answering to one boss, that guy's going to have a lot easier time keeping a lid on those 40 drivers than a small team of managers and supervisors would have keeping a lid on a fleet of, you know, 500 in a major city or something like that. Um yeah. And then it also keeps all of the the different groups of drivers from intermingling. So it's kind of the same situation in my job where it's like you have all of your employees scattered in little groups across the city and there's no one big building they all come to for lunch or whatever where they might get the bright idea to start organizing in mass. Right. Okay. So this last mile thing is is about um, 
the the concept of it being a lot more expensive to actually get out in that kind of l- the last mile of delivery where you are making stops at every house where you are de- yeah. maybe delivering a small package and and it takes a lot of time and then they say that about a third of the logistical costs of shipping basically land on this last mile situation and so they've done a lot of work to kind of corner that and one thing that I learned while going over this labor notes article was one of the things that they did recently, which people know that they bought uh, Whole Foods a while back. And I was like, okay, so they're getting into groceries. And that's the way that it appears to a lot of people. It's like, okay, Amazon wants to do grocery delivery or or whatever. But it's actually because they are um, getting to be attached to a huge uh, shipping network that puts the um their their shipping capabilities in uh within 10 miles of like 80 percent of the entire population in the united states right yeah they have like over almost 500 refrigerated warehouses inside of whole foods across the country now and apparently it's very common for amazon delivery drivers if they need to keep something cold, they can go to a Whole Foods and as an Amazon employee, they can go in and use the storage there. I mean, I'm sure they don't just show up in the parking lot. Like they probably have to call or use an app or something. Right. There's a piece of paperwork or something. But exactly. But that's the thing. Like Amazon wants to be able to vertically integrate because the idea is that eventually 90% of people will buy 90% of things from Amazon. And then Amazon is essentially more powerful than any state church super PAC other corporation you know in the world yeah and and i was just thinking i was like how is it that um because when it comes to things like this we saw facebook have to go through some antitrust stuff which means that they what they might have to sell uh they're selling whatsapp or something like that okay. and um and i was thinking like where is the antitrust on something like this if we were doing if the if like the neoliberals were like okay amazon's gone too far they're just like do they separate shipping? Do they ship or separate internet services? I mean, any one of these could make a uh, a small dent, but no matter what, like the the corner on this market is it's over. Like the the only thing left to do is nationalize this business. Yeah, we need to do something about Amazon, and it needs to be yeah nationalizing, municipalizing, dissolving. I, yeah, I, it's a little overwhelming because I mean I know there's a lot of um, workers organizing to try to actually create better labor rights, whether it be in um, what was it, in Alabama, where uh, we're still waiting on the election to come through for that union at the warehouse, right. um, or, or in many other places where there even are unions in like Europe and such. Uh, it's just that it's so big that a couple of unions are just not going to be able to, to do that. Um, and so... I think that we need to be talking a lot more about what we need to do to stop some of this, because what we're doing here is we're outlining a lot of the problems and we're not actually presenting any solutions because I don't think that we necessarily even have come up with any. No, I mean, that's the whole idea, though, is like all of these problems are set up in a way that they foreclose on solutions, right? Like this whole like I, I support unions, I support party organizing, all of this stuff. But like capitalism has come a really long way. Like the innovations of capitalism in ways to get away with and further more efficiently exploit people are 
you know, if I wasn't so horrified, I'd be impressed. Honestly, they're incredible. <laughs> and, and we don't, we need that kind of energy in terms of organizing in the other direction. You know, whether you're an anarcho syndicalist or a Marxist Leninist or whatever, we need something that is going to bring together everybody who has a vested interest in making every 99% of people's lives better at the expense of the people who have fucked all of this up for so long. Um, mm -hmm. And until, you know, people are ready to do that. It's going to be arguing about whether Jimmy Dore is being too mean to people <laughs> when he asks the yeah. squad to withhold a oh vote. Like, gosh. I don't care. I don't care about all of this labyrinthian bourgeois shit. It's so yeah. pointless. I heard that um, on like four different podcasts that are actually generally very <laughs> radical podcasts, but somehow Jimmy Dore of the Young Turks or whatever managed to make it into all of my actual radical. <laughs> like, yeah, I was arguing pieces. with one of the editors from current affairs today uh and she was acting like i was like really hard in jimmy Dore's corner and i was like i don't i don't fucking care about all of this like they, i don't you don't matter you're you're some random editor he's some random you know progressive pundit or whatever i don't know who jimmy Dore is he's exactly. a comedian i think or was a oh, comedian great. yeah i don't know the world needs less comedians and more funny people it's from the uh, the the i don't know what do you call them sock dems over at the young turks that's where okay that's yeah where yeah. Well, anyway, so. it's it's all it's 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 all this, you know, it's a distraction. It's a busy box and it, we need to be saying like, hey, we need a mass movement. We need a, a international organization that's going to tell Amazon like, fuck off. You can't treat your workers like this. And if you do, we'll just take your company away from you. Yeah. But speaking of large shipping companies treating their workers yeah, incredibly badly. Staying on the shipping point. Yeah. Uh, we have some news from FedEx and this is a, this is a real downer because this isn't even talking about any kind of organizing or anything that's been going on there. It's just talking about like the truly excessive and preventable injuries and death that have been, you know, wrought upon FedEx employees. Uh, basically just through negligence and, and lack of care for human life. So right. on, we have, we have two cases in here on November 22nd in 2016, Fanny Stanberry, who was 61 years old, was working as a package handler at the world hub. There's a massive facility that FedEx has, um, and packages start started to fall from a giant shipping container that rolled past her. She bent down to pick up the packages, or so she was told when she finally came to, and she fell and became trapped between the catwalk she'd been standing on and the wheeled platform carrying the shipping container. Uh, and she said, you know, I thought I was a goner. She broke eight ribs and her left arm and lacerated her liver. When I read that, said, I was just like, that's so brutal. Like, yeah, that's outrageous. And she said she had to learn how to walk again. Like it, it at 61 years old, you shouldn't, you should be getting ready for retirement, you know, or already retired, I think. But yeah, like everybody should retire at 40. Yeah, honestly. So, you know, this is a woman who had previously been working at a food, right? Which I guess is like a grocery store. Um, and she ended up coming over to the FedEx facility because they paid $15 an hour instead of 11. But then she got injured, you know, and that puts her out of work. And then she has to pay all of her medical bills and everything. Uh, and she also said that she noticed when she was working that almost all of her coworkers were very young because working at this FedEx facility is apparently very physically demanding. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's anything yeah. like the Amazon facilities I've seen. Also, I mean, young people are are very much so exploited in in ways that 
we've that many other generations haven't seen. Right. Yeah. And they go out of their way to target young people and, and get them in. And they think they're, Oh, I got this great job. It's $15 an hour. And maybe it's only your first or your second job. So you don't really have a lot to compare it to. You don't really know how much you're getting fucked over, how unnecessarily dangerous it really is. Um, you know, and that's so they can make money. Um, and then, so when, when this happened, the Tennessee OSHA, uh, division sent a letter short Tosha, which I like. Yeah. Tosha T O (laughs) Uh, SHA sent this letter to the facility and said, while this letter is not a citation and we do not intend to conduct an investigation at this time, we ask that you immediately conduct your own investigation into the incident and make any necessary changes to avoid further incidents. And then FedEx returned a two page form and in three sentences described the corrective actions that they were going to take. And then Tennessee OSHA was like, fine, case closed, solved, (laughs) done. Um, and this woman was injured two, two days before Thanksgiving. She had to spend Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's and her birthday in the hospital, followed by weeks of rehab. And then nearly three years later, a strikingly similar incident at the very same location actually killed a young man whose name was, uh, Duntate Young, a 23 year old temporary worker who'd been on the job just shy of a month. Um, he was also unloading packages. Uh, a shipping container was moving by being pulled by a motorized tug. And apparently it's a common practice to close the doors on these containers, but not actually lock them. Uh, because they're in such a rush, like they're actually, they're they're being held to such a a rushing standard that if they lock it, they're going to slow them down and they're going to get chewed out by their other coworkers because those coworkers are going to get chewed out by the boss. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, they don't say it in the article, but I'm sure there's some manager who, if they see you locking a container, they're like, why are you wasting time? Get get to the next one. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, but so packages began to falling against the door. The door swung open and it hit young in the back of the leg and he fell chest first into a metal pole, um, and was pronounced dead shortly thereafter at a nearby hospital in the article mentions, you know, he was a church musician, a father, a rapper, you know, this guy was a a member of the community and Tosha came down and they did an onsite investigation and they concluded that FedEx was aware from Stanberry's injury of the hazards associated with containers and the equipment ferrying them around, but that the company had not done enough to fix the problem. And then they find FedEx a, a company that annually makes seven and a half billion dollars, they find them seven thousand dollars for failing it's to provide a workplace. Seventy-five billion, so times ten. Oh yes, uh, time, times that by ten. See, that's the thing. It's so many fucking orders of magnitude away from a thousand, right? Like a million is a thousand thousands, a billion is a thousand millions, then seventy-five of those. That's that's yeah. how much money they make compared to what they got fined. Right. And so this person's life is worth $7,000. And then not only that, once the um like once FedEx had supposedly fixed these issues, the fine was brought down to just under $6,000. So ridiculous. Like how the fuck is this the I don't know. OSHA is consistently rated not a uh, not one of the best regulatory agencies, uh, and right. I don't know. There there needs there needs to be much stronger teeth in in an organization like that. Yeah, relevant to whether OSHA is effective or not. Um, this guy Peter Dooley from the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health 
said that Young's death was, quote-unquote, extremely preventable, and also said the fact that this similar circumstance ends up in fatality several years later just shows how inadequate the investigation and follow-up was into the previous incident. And this is a holiday case where um, basically a te- this temporary worker was not properly trained, Mm-hmm. was brought in to do this in extremely high volume stuff. I mean, they bring in temporary workers to do this and especially FedEx is one of the um, only non-union uh, or one of the main non-union shipping places. They really have some of the most appalling work condi- work conditions for shipping uh, right. businesses. And I mean, we're not surprised that it would happen in a FedEx facility. I mean, not not to say that UPS is some sort of magical company or anything like that but at least uh it's probably less likely that people are going to get impaled at work yeah yeah i mean uh apparently ProPublica and mlk 50 interviewed some workers and this one worker um a former fedex employee aisha prater said a lot of the stuff they overlook just because everyone is in a rush and and trying to rush through and FedEx's own data shows that worker fatalities have risen from seven fatalities in a two-year span from 17 to 18 up to 10 just last year. So they're obviously, you know, there's increased yeah. demand, there's increased throughput, and their answer to that is just to push these workers harder until they die. Uh, yeah. Because it doesn't matter to them. Because what do they have to do? They have to do a little bit of paperwork and pay six grand? That that's that's it. That's the only repercussion if their employees die. Yeah. Hopefully, the the um, the lawsuit uh, in Young's death, which is a, they're seeking three million dollars um, yes. for Young's two sons. Um, but I mean, hopefully, we see them get that. I think that uh, those two sons should get the company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should just give just give them the whole damn thing. If they can give it to the workers. Yeah, I mean nothing but support to the families of these people. Um, Young's father, Lionel Troy McClinton, uh, did a very good thing by filing this uh, wrongful death case. Yeah, and just you right. know, fuck. Is that fuck to say that other deaths aren't filed as wrongful death cases? Is that just like is somehow a death on the on the job site ever justified? Like that's that's what I want to know. Like, I mean, I don't know. In the eyes of corporate, they're probably all justified, you know, because you're in that position and one of your employees dies. You're not thinking about the employee's family. You don't care. You're thinking about PR and like, you know, what the press is going to think and how you're going to have to spin this. And like, it's a professional concern and it sucks all of the humanity out of the situation. So yeah. Yeah. yeah fuck FedEx and nothing but support to these people's families. Yeah. So we lied <laughs> uh, about one thing in this episode, and that was uh, that uh, the the surprise was going to come um, only in uh, in the next patron episode. Uh, we still highly encourage you to um, enjoy that when it comes out with. Um, our newest addition to the team as a co-host, uh, we have Dan here with us. Um, Dan, yeah, you can go ahead and unmute now. Are you here with us? Hello, everybody. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, just uh, happy to be here, and uh, I just want to thank you you both for the, the invite and the opportunity. I, I mean, I love the show, <laughs> and I think like that as many great left podcasts that we have out there, a lot of them don't really cover like actual 
labor news on the ground. And part of that obviously is because the media doesn't cover it that much, but that's why like I've been a big fan of this show for a while. And I I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on add my two cents. Oh, yeah. Well, you are very very much so a media watcher. You're, uh, it's one of the reasons why we brought you on here because we saw, I mean, you were helping us pick out some articles and you were uh, basically doing uh, some of the work uh, with us and we're just like, why not just in, like invite you to do uh, some of the talky part too? Well, and, uh, you know, l- people who listen to the show or are familiar with the show might also know uh, Dan from the Discord. Is it cool if I blow up your Discord handle? Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm uh, Kel Baynor on the, the Work Stoppers Discord, the Beep Beep Discord, various communist discords. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Dan was just doing so much of our work for us, it felt wrong to not get him a microphone so <laughs> yeah so uh dan what is our uh the last story that we are covering uh in this episode all right so this is an article uh from in these times it's called the union members who voted for trump have to be organized not ignored and from other publications like if this was from like washington post or something i'd see a headline like that and i'd ignore it because i would usually assume this is like a jd vance white working class sort of thing where <laughs> Uh-huh. They're trying to distract the from actual class issues. The workers need to get along with the managers. Right, exactly. <laughs> but because it's in these times, good pro-labor, uh, pro-union uh, publication, I, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe th- this is actually a conversation folks are having. And like the lead on this is, is, is um, the fact that 74 million people, almost a third of whom came from households making under $50,000, voted for Trump. So like that's a, that's a fact that like we can't, that I agree with them. We can't ignore the fact that about 24 million people making under $50,000 uh, voted for Trump. Like it, 24 yeah. million people is probably too many to, to, to completely write off. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to provide a little bit of context, I did dig, in, dig into the like actual like exit poll stats and stuff on this because it's still a little bit misleading, even though they're not doing the whole white working class is the whole working class thing. Because while 24 million people in the working class voted for Trump, that leaves out the fact that you then have 30 million people voted for Biden. And the stat that I think is probably the most crucial, 61 million people making under 50K of a voting age um, didn't vote at all. Right. So like, I think this is a good conversation to have about how do we, we treat, uh, like, how do we try and organize? How do we try and bring over folks who voted for Trump, uh, in the working class? But I think that as good as a conversation is to have, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that like most of the working class doesn't vote. Cause the, yeah, definitely that. But the, then the question becomes is like, why is it that these people whose interests are very much so tied to uh, better labor conditions and, and things like that? Why is it that, uh, they would be interested in this sort of, in, in like a, a fascist president, um, because in general, I mean, as we know, fascists are pretty anti-labor. Uh, and we even saw that through a lot of Trump's um, like actual legislation. But I think what you pointed out in uh, some of these uh, points is that a lot of this is actually just a media spin confusing uh, voters themselves with the issues. Basically, through a bunch of polling data, we see that it appears that a ton of Americans are just centrists, but it really actually isn't quite that. Well, it's like, it's more like they feel disenfranchised by politics, right? Like a lot, I think a lot of working people take one glance at politics and they're like, 
none of this makes any fucking sense. It's totally opaque. There's no explainers for it. The news is scary and difficult to understand. And honestly, I just don't even think I'm going to bother. And then a good chunk of them, you know, Trump came along and he said a few things on TV. They might have tuned in here and there. And they're like, well, he's definitely not like the other politicians, which was certainly true in some sense. And that's enough to fucking win them over. You know, a lot of like people end up having good politics after a period of political uncertainty. And that period of political uncertainty can easily take you down a, a Trump or a MAGA road or an, a weird like fucking anarcho-capitalist road as easily as it could actually end up orienting you towards something worthwhile. And it's our job as like the, the left, or the hopefully organized left in the United States to find people who are experiencing that political uncertainty and be like, hey, buddy, I've got a politics that isn't a scam for you. But it's just really hard to know what the best way to, to get that across to people isn't so we can get you know the broader working class in our corner yeah and like to emphasize they point out in the article that they did they asked all these questions about let's okay so we have these 24 million working class people who voted for trump why are all 24 million of them you know just like raving frothing at the mouth white supremacists it's like i'm sure some of the 24 million are uh it's this this is america america produces that kind of person um but like 24 million, probably not. So they asked all these questions about like where they stood on various issues and it produced this completely incoherent uh, response of voters believed in both expanding the coal industry and protecting the environment, both <laughs> in universal health care, but also uh, like not providing any services to un- undocumented immigrants and keeping out refugees in both lowering health care costs and making health care costs more, uh, uh, making health care more accessible to citizens but then also banning abortion. Um, so you, you, you see this, this completely eclectic collection. And, and I think that in a, again, in a more right-wing publication, you'd, you'd have all this stuff about, well, see how this is the working class is just conservative and we have to respect, but you know, in these times being a better publication than that has correctly, at least partially identified. That's like, well, those responses don't come from nowhere. And it's not that there's like some inherent, <laughs> Inco- like like nonsensical politic- politics of the working class. It's that we live in this environment that is so incredibly conservative and can constantly bombarding people on talk radio, on like Fox News, on the it at conversations Bubble at news. the water cooler that are like run by their boss, and and yep. and and so they're getting all of these huge messages. And so like people, like you said, like there's so much information out there. And people are being lied to all the time. So folks don't know what to believe and people pick up on uh, arguments by osmosis. And and it really speaks to the ridiculous level of hegemony that the the ruling class has over all of our discourse. It's like how we got into these debates recently about, oh, is $600 or $2,000 good enough in the, the stimulus? When it's like the fact that that's the framing is the problem yes. that, that, yeah. that, that we can only talk in such a small box. And so like, that's where this incoherency right. comes from. And then the articles, the article cites like some um, actual like tactics that were used initially to help uh, when they were f- afraid of like 
Janice basically cutting the the funding of a ton of different public sector unions and ways that they kind of combated a conservative angle that was actually pretty successful when it came to actually going out there and doing education campaigns through making sure every uh, shop steward went out and talked to basically every single union member about right. like what the union is doing and why their their uh, dues are making their uh, rights more I don't know, ingrained or, or making their contracts better. And I think that that's, that's what the article is leaning towards is like, you know, we, we can't just write a lot of these people off. We need to get out there and do really intense education campaigns. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about meeting the working class or the working classes more accurately where they're at. Right. Which I think there's this, this kind of superficial surface layer debate that goes on about that, especially online among the leftists that I see where it's like, you know, oh, you know, we need to be doing more outreach to the to the hardened conservatives because we would be looking out for them too. And then other people are saying like, well, we can't we can't let them into our fun little leftist reading group or whatever because it'll water down the politics. And it's like, how do you not understand that? Like, you don't have to agree with somebody on everything. You could even like you can get raving lunatics to support your one little task oriented clause. You know, somebody doesn't have to like believe that abortion is a right to want better rights at work. So just because you don't agree with them on this one political issue doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be there trying to educate them about why this would help them in the workplace. And I think people have an objection. They're like, I don't want to compartmentalize my politics. You know, it all, right. it all touches. But in the it, end, it's all important. Right. But in the end, when you're actually organizing with these people, bringing them in, you are actually providing yourself with an opportunity to get people back on the, the, correct side of like human rights and such in that like sure you might not be able to convince someone uh to be uh for someone's right to choose an abortion uh through a one-on-one debate but if you were uh colleagues with them if you were comrades with them actually organizing to get better conditions some of those things would probably casually come up and there would be a lot of other nuance that they might not have ever heard before because now they're being associated they're able to associate friendly like with leftists Yeah. It's like if you get somebody organized and it's like, hey, buddy, you know, like, did you see that? Like we we all work together, you know, across, you know, race and and gender and and whatever lines in our workplace. And we got everybody more money in their pocket. That's going to make them a lot more receptive to you later when you're like, hey, be cool if you were less racist. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and exactly. And it's one of those things where like they start pointing out the solution but I, I feel like it's a little too, their, their scope is just too narrow because right. like the stuff that they're talking about with uh, like all the like rank and file talking to every single member, like political education work they did to try and lead up to Janice to, to make sure that with when the, you know, very easily predicted conservative ruling came down that like they'd be able to keep dues coming in, be able to keep, be able to maintain the union um, because they would have educated the rank and file as to like why, even if they're not required to pay dues, they're still getting all these benefits from the union. And and it's really the responsibility of the collective to do that. Uh And it seems like from, you know, from their discussions that that was actually very effective. And that's, what's frustrating is that I'm like, then why aren't you doing this kind of education all the time? It's like, that's the thing. It's like, that's how we create a counter hegemony. That's how you push back against like Fox news and, and talk radio and, mm-hmm. and, 
fascist propaganda is like, like you're saying, like you have the material on the ground, actual day-to-day like class struggle in the workplace. And it just seems to me like unions in the U.S. have ever since the Red Scare and even before that been so fucking terrified of doing any sort of political education, even like real milk toast, like democratic socialist or social democrat right. stuff, because they're so afraid of getting branded as, oh, they've been infiltrated by the communists, which I certainly wish was actually happening, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> is not. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is something I, I think I've mentioned before that at one point I I was working for uh, a union radio station. They talked about like union uh, stuff before. It's part of how I even got into labor and labor reporting. But uh, that radio station closed because of Janice, not not because of. Uh, because Janice actually cut funding from unions, but because the unions were so scared of losing their funding that they cut all of their support of the radio station, <laughs> which literally was an education source. Ugh. Wow. That's the thing that's so frustrating is that, that we, we see these, well, why do we have all these uh, union voters abandoning the, the Democratic Party? And I'm like, well, A, because the Democratic Party has done nothing but betray the, the working class for right. its entire existence. And B, because there's only one side trying to actually do political, ed- well, their version of political education, um, of indoctrinating the working class into all of the various ways that they split us apart, you know, racism, sexism, uh, transphobia, all the, all the bullshit that the ruling class uses to, to keep us from organizing. And like, that's the, that's the, the terrain on which we have to start meeting them or we're never going to pull people like back from that because that's the thing it's like so many of these viewpoints they're not like if people don't like they're they're not born and then they go to kindergarten and then they just innately hate abortion like (laughs) right all all of this stuff is is caused by propaganda from the ideological state apparatus and we have to build our own counter to that and so like uh this sort of political education stuff is is great and like i'm not uh, i'm a marxist leninist not a big fan of electoralism but like the more people that are working on this front the better and and the article talks about a specific example um was a partnership this year between uh the united electrical workers and the dsa where they formed Mm -hmm. an emergency workplace organizing committee to help folks organize in the midst of COVID 19 and that's awesome like if like, yeah, okay, I'm to the left of the DSA. So what? That work rules. Like, the, we need more shit like that everywhere and more unions working together to do that stuff. So, like, that's the only thing that frustrated me about this article is the end of it. It starts to be like, well, we really need the, the DNC to be better and listen to the more progressive <laughs> voice. I'm like, no. <laughs> no we need the we- fucking DSA to jump ship from the DNC, get yes. a lot more radical, and do more shit like reaching out and organizing with workplace unions and 10 unions and shit like that like there's so much on the ground work to be done and there are scattered you know PSL yeah, chapters and there are some, uh, like, some tenant you know, organizers in the DSA too but it's, yeah, not, it's not like a it's not like a core contingent of them that's doing that well, well, like a lot of the people in the Pittsburgh DSA that I know are actually much more radical than the, the DSA organization that they're in. And they do tenants organizing and stuff, but they don't do it with the DSA. They go do it with the PSL or the, right. the socialist alternative or whatever other, you know, local socialist groups are in town. And it would be nice to see because it's not that the DSA is like magical because it has been engaging in elect- electoralism for so long. The DSA is magical because it's, it's got huge. a lot of people. Right. It's, it's got a lot gigantic. Of 
Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a resource that we need to, I, it's almost like we need to expropriate the D the DSA from the Democratic <laughs> party. Yeah. 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 Cause fuck the Democrats. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, thanks for being with us. We're very excited to have you with us, Dan. Uh, how about we move into some real, uh, political education <laughs> in, in <laughs> in the meme review i i'm really glad you appreciated the the <laughs> uh but you know i actually i'm gonna take it back because even the first two memes are actually just like they're electoral memes about this the stimulus checks and all that just exactly like what dan was mentioning and well it's like when i when i share memes about how much i hate republicans i don't want anybody to be thinking that i'm saying go vote against them i'm just saying like these people don't uh <laughs> I can't say anything actionable on the pod, but I don't think that they, I, I'd like it if they all drop dead, uh, <laughs> you know? Right. Which actually the first meme is about that. Um, yeah. Th- this first one is, uh, just a, what is this? I, I guess it's the guy crying and then crying harder. So, uh, <laughs> the first one is, uh, just a Google search of how long do tortoises live? 150 years. Regular cry, very sad. Turtles should turtles should live forever. This, that would be that would be really great. And then uh, Mitch McConnell age seventy eight. Like then crying <laughs> harder because obviously it's implying that Mitch McConnell is not going to die for another seventy some years. Yeah, um, I like this meme because it's bittersweet. There's like the sadness yeah. of thinking Mitch McConnell is going to pull a Henry Kissinger and like outlive or, or Keith Richards and just like outlive the death of the sun. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then it's also calling him a turtle, which is very funny. Uh, yeah, very, very funny. <laughs> that joke never I, gets old. I'm, yeah, I, I know. I'm just sad that turtles get such a bad rap. You know, it makes me think that when, <laughs> when they were filming Master of Disguise, they probably <laughs> should have cast Mitch McConnell. <laughs> uh, also, fun fact about Master of Disguise, 9-11 happened during the filming of that movie. <laughs> And they stopped for a moment when they realized what had happened, but then they immediately resumed filming. So it's <laughs> just like a funny moment in American production history. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, that movie is not good. It's terrible. <laughs> I loved it when I was a kid, but I had terrible taste. So yeah. And then in the same one, uh, in the same kind of vein, we have a, a Bart Simpson with a cake that literally, this is actually kind of goes back to some early, uh, episodes of work stoppage where we were trying to, um, maybe release some information on some people, but the cake says, uh, Mitch McConnell's home address is 2318 Dundee road, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, that's it. It's just a meme with Mitch McConnell's address on it. And I like that one. I like this one actually a little bit better because like, I don't know, going out there and, uh, I mean, Mitch McConnell might pen an op-ed, uh, basically say, <laughs> do some uh, restraining orders saying that these are left-wing extremists who want yeah. an extra $1,400. <laughs> I just think we should blast, you know, powerful people's home addresses out there. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that people might want to send them. Scratch-off tickets you know, other gifts, brownies. So, you know, send, send Mitch McConnell, whatever you think he deserves. That's what sternly I worded letters. <laughs> yeah. Sternly worded letters. <laughs> I know Mitch I cannot McConnell. make explosive letters. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. McConnell. I hope this letter finds you well enclosed. You will find a sternly worded gun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, 
I do, do we want to do a combo rate of those? Do we want to Yeah, I'll combo I'll combo rate those. I'm going to go I'm going to go 7 out of 10. They're pretty good and I love pot shots at Mitch McConnell, but uh I just don't I don't want anybody to think I'm a democrat if I go sharing these online. Yeah. Well, I I liked the cry, the crying harder emoji just cuz I don't know, it was yeah. very visceral cuz it weird I made me care about turtles first. Yeah, that's true. It makes so. you think of turtle. Well, that's some cognitive dissonance. Calling Mitch McConnell a turtle. It's like it's not disrespectful to turtles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, and then um, well, I've got another meme in here, which actually is, uh, I believe, one that you made. Maybe like <laughs> I think Four it said years tw- ago. I, it it would have been twenty fifteen that this was five. That- turning into six years ago oh my god this is only this is only here because of the next one but um this is just a photo of a landfill right yeah it's just a photo of a landfill i found and i threw the jurassic park logo on it because i thought it would be funny to to draw that incredibly loose parallel but also it's worth noting that this wasn't made to be a traditional meme this was made to be posted in a really artsy fartsy kind of alternative alt lit adjacent meme slash om group. This is what people talk about when they say millennials have weird humor. Yeah, this is why this is why nothing I talk about can ever connect. This it's like the the breaking bad meme where I'm like the om group was not a meme group. It was an alt lit adjacent uh <laughs> image macro group and he's just like Jesse, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> um but I I made this and I threw it in there and it was right. actually one of my better performing ones for a long time. Yeah. But it's really just there to get us to the Jeff Goldblum meme. Right. <laughs> uh, because Jeff, this is just a, a Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park one. Uh, and the the top text on this one is, when your real life friends start liking your Marxist propaganda. And then it's just Jeff Goldblum saying, you did it, you crazy son of a bitch. You did it. Which I... <laughs> I this one, some of these I, I think that are a bit more of a visual gag. So uh, make sure to, to jump in the Discord. Um, but the, st- I'm going to let someone else do this last one to to wrap I, up. I, well, I want to rate that one because I like oh, I yeah. like Jurassic Park memes. I want to give it a nine out of ten. It's pro Marxist. That's cool. It's got the phrase "son of a bitch," one of the greatest phrases of all time. <laughs> uh, and also, I've I don't think I've ever actually seen Jurassic Park all the way through. So I have this like fragmentary understanding of it from like watching it syndicated on TV at my like grandma and parents house various times and then through knowing it through memes. So it has a special cultural place for me, even though Jeff Goldblum kind of freaks me out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that meme. I, I'm actually the one who put that one in there. So I'm going <laughs> to. Well, and that is always a really good feeling when you, uh, you get somebody that, you know, in real life who maybe isn't quite as weird of a lefty mm-hmm. as most of us are, who starts to be like, you know, that, you know, that stuff kind of makes some sense. And it's always like, yes. Was <laughs> that, uh, that, po- that poster that, um, has been going around that said communism is good. Actually. I had like oh, yeah. two people like that on my Facebook that I just did not expect to like it. That was a really great poster also because like it looks like like you know that that like uh, Google Doodle style corporate art that always Mm -hmm. like sucks and is totally soulless. It has a lot of the same like artistic like technical stylistic elements in it, but it comes out to something that like actually looked like good art like it felt like a really genuine depiction of a scene and it's it's really nice to see that style 
have some actual life breathed into it instead of just being an ad for a company that already controls my life. Yeah, I'll see if um I'll see if I can't get the the artist to be uh to be in the Discord. Uh, not the artists themselves, but at least a a link to the artists in the Discord to check out. Hell yeah. So And then for our final meme, we have one that I wanted to toss in here because I just I loved it and it's from the motherfucking share zone uh at the share zone with a zero instead of an O. And it just, it's got a, it's got a skeleton in a, in a comfortable chair, leaning back, lighting a fart on fire (laughs) (laughs) and like blood and joints on the, the edges of the meme. It says new year's resolutions. One, smoke weed two get vaccine three, lick grocery carts to remove my germophobia that I got from the virus. <laughs> that last one definitely hit me when I was when I was first checking this out. It's just like, yeah, <laughs> I I mean, I know a bunch of people who are like, I can't believe I ever like le- like shared air with other people. Like, I'm gonna I wear know. masks for the rest of my life. Well, you seen that tweet going around where it's like, man, we really used to go to bowling alleys and stick three of our fingers into a rented bowling ball and then use those same fingers to eat chicken wings and pizza all afternoon. Well, it, it, rem- <laughs> it reminds me of that other one where somebody took the like thermal like. Um, computational fluid dynamics chart of what people's breath looks like mm-hmm. and then just is like man i can't wait until the pandemic is over we can just blast each other with particles again <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah i can't wait to yeah. be out there particle blasting you know it <laughs> i'm gonna be a really after this pandemic is over i think i'm gonna become a really close talker i think that's my gonna face, be my thing my, my face is a particle accelerator <laughs> that's right <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I give this a 10 out of 10. This is fantastic. Yeah. I give all those other <laughs> posts we just talked about a 10 yeah. out of 10. Every, everything gets out of 10. Everything gets 10 out of 10 now. <laughs> We're giving out whose line is it anyway points. Don't worry about it too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, look forward to having uh, Dan on more episodes. If you're, He's going to be in here for the first full episode and the next patron episode. So become a patron at uh, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash work stoppage, all one word. And then uh, in there, you can either find our Discord, you can find all of our mini episodes. This is episode 28, meaning that I'm pretty sure there's like at least 15 or so um, other locked episodes that you'll be unlocking. Plus, you'll get Mm -hmm. uh, an extra episode, um, well, twice as many episodes a month. Rate us uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leave a little review. Um, we always appreciate the ego boost. Uh, join us on Discord. There will be a link in the description. Uh, John is Facebook villain on Twitter. I am Solidarity B. And Dan, do you have a Twitter you want to put out there? Or? I deleted my Twitter because Twitter is bad for my anxiety. <laughs> so All right. I'm just Kelbanor on various on Discord. Discord platforms. Yeah. <laughs> Join Kel Baner on Discord with all of us. Uh, check out Beep Beep Lettuce. I know that Kel Baner's on a real play podcast too. Which one was that? Oh, yeah. So the other thing that um, I do is um, I play one of the characters on uh, the Red Game Table podcast, uh, which is run by uh, Ethan, formerly of uh, Pearls of the Roundtable. And it's, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, like you said, it's a real play podcast. We play basically Soviet X-Files. Uh, it's pretty fun. 
Hell yeah. yeah. It's very cool. I, I listened to it. I haven't it. heard that yet. Very good. Anyway, uh, thank you all for listening, and we will hopefully see you next week in the Patreon. Uh, solidarity forever. And check see out you in this, the Discord. Check out this Christmas song that I uh, that I wrote. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to play the Christmas song. Well, I, it's a remix. Anyway. Oh. Uh, I just need to